You're listening to Tracing the Roots of the Climate Crisis. Chapter 3. The Walls Built in Our Minds. The town that I grew up in, Veneta, Oregon, sits at the foothills of Oregon's coast range, right where the hills meet the southernmost part of the Willamette Valley. At the corner of Territorial Road and Highway 126, there used to be this diner that served as a bit of a hub for our community. Folks like loggers and farmers and many others would gather for breakfast and chew the fat with their neighbors. As a place of gathering, Biggs reinforced the patterns of solidarity that tethered our community. But it also fortified our dividing lines. In the parking lot of Biggs, Hayuhihi, as the diner was called, was a mock totem pole, topped with a carved Cleveland Indian-style image of a native man, grinning. So there, on Kalapuya land, stood a faux Haida pole, upon which a caricatured Indian smiled down on overburdened log trucks that seemed always to drive in the same direction. This Indian statue tells us almost nothing about the indigenous peoples of this land. But it tells a troubling story about my community. He was our creation, after all. And he was invented by us to be our mirror image. He's one important construction that justified the subordination of this land and its ancestral peoples. My whiteness is another. I'm Ben Cushing, Welcome to Chapter 3 of Tracing the Roots of the Climate Crisis. This week we'll ask questions like, what's the relationship between the walls in our minds and the walls between our communities? Where did these walls come from? What purpose do they serve? And whose? Sometimes I ask the folks in my classes whether or not Wednesday exists. They usually look at me funny for a second, and then look at each other and start talking. There's often some debate, but they usually come to a very important conclusion pretty much on their own. Someone will say, no, it's not real. Somebody just made it up. And then somebody else will respond, just because somebody made it up doesn't mean it's not real. It turns out lots of things are like that. Not real, and yet really real. Made up, but consequential. Money's made up, but anybody who's faced hunger or eviction knows it's real. Nations are made up, but anybody facing a border wall or a tank knows they matter. Wednesday's an example of what is sometimes called a social construction. That term's gained quite a bit of traction in the past couple of years. A social construction like Wednesday is a category. It's part of our language, and we use it to make sense of the world around us. In this case, it helps us organize our sense of time. When pressed on it, we can certainly see that there's no essential Wednesdayness to one day or Thursdayness to the day after. But since we basically agree on what day of the week it is, the social construction that we call Wednesday shapes how we see the world and how we behave, like whether or not we go to work or gather with our friends. Social constructions matter because they organize our shared sense of reality. To borrow a phrase from the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, they give us patterns of, quote, vision and division, end quote. Shared ways of seeing 
and dividing into categories the world around us. And since social constructions are made by people and arbitrary, that means our sense of reality is also made by people and arbitrary. And that matters. Actually, all aspects of culture, from our values to our big stories to our social constructions like Wednesday, are made by people. And all of us participate in that process. In a sense, we're all co-creators of our shared worldview. But it's not like we all sit in a circle and come to consensus on our culture. This isn't an especially democratic situation. Do all people in this society have equal power? If not, do those groups with more power have more influence over the culture? More influence over beliefs, language, stories, representations of other less powerful people? If they do, do those powerful groups shape the culture in ways that benefit them? If the answer to that last question is yes, that's pretty troubling. That would mean that our own beliefs could be hurting us, that my own sense of reality could be manipulating me. In this chapter and the next, We'll be exploring some of the ways that culture can function to legitimize systems of power. It can even make those systems feel natural and inevitable as just the way the world works. And we're also going to ask questions about how culture might be a site of resistance. If beliefs and stories can justify oppressive systems, can we not also use beliefs and stories to challenge those systems and call into being alternative ways of living together? ways that do justice to our past and present and allow us to build the worlds that we want and need. But that's a really big subject. So where do we begin? Let's start by thinking about division or more specifically about dichotomy. I began by talking about Biggs Hayuhihi, the diner in a white rural community with a racist native mascot. In that case, we can think of the social construction of the, quote, Indian and the social construction of the, quote, white man as a dichotomy. Both categories, Indian and white, are made by people, like Wednesday. And in this case, the so-called Indian and the so-called white man are presented as opposites, as profoundly different and mutually exclusive. That's how dichotomies work. They're two socially constructed categories that are defined as mutually exclusive and profoundly different, often as opposites. So perhaps we need to give some thought to the socially constructed dichotomies that have played an important role in justifying and naturalizing the systems of power that we've inherited. These dichotomies are not only crucial to understanding our past, they're a key to understanding and dismantling the systems of violence and exploitation that we face today. They also help us see how interwoven various systems of power are, from gendered violence to institutional racism to the fossil fuel industry. 
In what follows, I'm going to name some pretty painful elements of this culture, including racist and sexist stereotypes. To understand this culture and how it erases, justifies, and normalizes all kinds of violence and exploitation, we have to take a clear-eyed look at some devastating ideas. What makes that worse is that if we're honest, most of us will find that these ideas have found their way into our own thinking, into our own consciousness. And for many listeners, they may be just one more reminder of the daily indignities of living in this society. Sometimes when I teach, I'll put a T-chart up on the board, like a big cross. On the top left side, I'll write human, and on the top right, I'll write nature. Nature and human are a classic dichotomy. Students then brainstorm some of the cultural meanings associated with each. It doesn't take them long to see that this culture frames them as opposites. We end up creating a list that looks something like this. Humans, civilized. Nature, wild. Humans, dominant. Nature, submissive. Humans, subjects or actors. Nature, objects, acted upon. Humans, rational. Nature, irrational, unthinking. Humans, owner. Nature, property. Human, master. Nature, wild and in need of taming. The list goes on, safe, dangerous, ordered, chaotic. If you wanted, you could begin to build your own list. There's a lot more to be added. Remember, this list that we're building isn't about naming what's true. Most of us know on some level that this stuff isn't true. It's about noting the cultural meanings that function in the background of our minds and which may actually influence the way we think and behave. Note how much of this is about defining relationships. Dominant, submissive, owner-owned, master-tamed. These ideas call into being certain ways of relating to the non-human world. And they make those relationships feel inevitable, natural. This human-nature dichotomy is so powerful that we even apply it to ourselves, dividing our being into opposing parts. We have a mind, which we frame as human, and a body, which we frame as natural. Many of us spend a good deal of time and money trying to tame our bodies. Perhaps even more powerfully, many of our religious traditions draw a hard line between our souls, which are sacred, and not of this world, and our bodies, which are profane and worldly, the source of our sins. As Wendell Berry wrote, quote, perhaps the greatest disaster in human history is one that happened to or within religion. That is, the conceptual division between the holy and the world, the excerpting of the creator from the creation, end quote. 
The dichotomy of the holy and the profane devalues the world and all living beings that constitute it, including, I'd argue, us. We're left with, in the words of the theologian Matthew Fox, a deep cosmological loneliness. I'll then put another T-chart up on the board for another dichotomy, another division grounded in this culture. On the left side, I write masculine. On the right, feminine. At this point, you could probably hit pause and fill this in on your own. But these are some of the meanings that we often write down. Masculine, strong. Feminine, weak. Masculine dominant, feminine submissive. Masculine rational, feminine irrational, emotional. Masculine protector, provider. Feminine vulnerable, dependent. Masculine active subject, feminine passive object. Of course, this list could go on and on. And of course, it would vary in different times and places. These are, after all, cultural creations subject to constant change. And they've certainly changed over time. Still, they persist in U.S. society today. And these aren't just meanings. Importantly, they're also roles. It's as if we're all actors in a kind of play, and given the masculine and feminine roles, we're all expected to read our script as written, and relate to one another as such. And of course, most of the institutions of our society have been historically, and often still are, organized according to these roles and the power relations they imply. Husband, wife, doctor, nurse, dentist, hygienist, pilot, flight attendant, boss, secretary, principal, teacher, and so on. Each are gendered roles in gendered institutions, and each concentrates power in predictable ways. These meanings matter because they don't only shape our thinking. They shape our behavior and organize our institutions. They organize power. Interestingly, many scholars have argued compellingly that these definitions of gender were created for the purpose of organizing unequal relations of power determining who serves whom and how. In just one example, the social scientist Silvia Federici argues in her remarkable book, Caliban and the Witch, that the rise of capitalism required the fragmenting of the communal aspects of medieval life, and particularly of women's power within it. The witch hunts that spanned the 16th and 17th centuries, she argues, were actually a form of class war waged by European elites against poor and working-class women. The result, she argues, was the redefinition of femininity along the lines we just outlined, framing women as irrational and dangerous, shrews in need of taming. The centuries-long campaign of public torture and terror that goes by the name The Witch Hunts attempted to break women's communal ties, their economic independence, and the peasant uprisings that they often led. Despite this continuous assault, various groups of women in all kinds of contexts have been resisting these forces, 
ever since. Federici's argument is far more complex than we can tackle here. But the point, for our purposes, is that this culture's ideas about gender aren't just wrong or cruel, which of course they are. Even more, they're functional to a specific system of power. They called into being certain relationships of domination and exploitation, which get branded as natural. It's just human nature, we're told. Just the way things are. The last T-chart to go up on the board is labeled with the words white and black. Like human in nature, and like masculine and feminine, white and black are social constructions, dichotomies invented by people. Historians have a pretty clear understanding of when, where, and why racial categories were invented. And perhaps by now you can guess the gist of the story. Racial categories function to legitimize various forms of power historically and today. They tell a story about who can enslave whom, about whose land can be taken by whom, and whose voice, indeed whose life, really matters within this society. So my students and I begin the ugly task of filling in our T-chart. It usually ends up looking something like this. White, civilized, black, savage. White, safe, black, dangerous. White, clean, black, dirty. White, rational, black, irrational. White, moral, black, perverse. White, human, black, not fully human. We could go on, but you get the picture. Over a century ago, the sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois pointed out that the act of representation was actually an act of power. One of the powers of dominant groups within a society, in this case white people, is to represent themselves and to represent others. In other words, white folks have the power to define whiteness for themselves and blackness for black people. More recently, the black feminist sociologist Patricia Hill Collins built on this insight, arguing that racial stereotypes aren't just generalizations about a racial group, which would be wrong because they erase individual differences. Rather, she suggests that racial stereotypes were strategically developed by white elites to justify specific forms of exploitation and violence. So, for example, when white slavers framed the black men that they enslaved as dangerous, especially to white women, they justified a whole regime of violent repression to maintain black men's subordination and punish anyone who fought back. Even more, Collins argues that white slavers developed gender-specific and class-specific stereotypes, which were applied to people according to the specific types of labor that they were forced into on plantations. For example, enslaved men who worked in the fields were framed as strong but dangerous, and enslaved women who worked in the master's home were framed as maternal and safe, the mammy stereotype. She called these representations controlling images, images that function to maintain a certain kind of race, class, and gender hierarchy to maintain control. There's much more to Collins's argument than we can address here, 
But the point, for our purposes, is that these socially constructed categories aren't just bad ideas. They're tools of power. And they've functioned to erase and legitimize some of the most horrific things that we humans have ever done to one another. Some listeners might be wondering what all of this has to do with the climate crisis. These seem like very different issues, and indeed in many respects they are. But consider the remarkable similarities between each of these socially constructed dichotomies, human, nature, masculine, feminine, white, black. They aren't exactly the same, for sure, but they sure rhyme. Note how each creates roles and calls into being certain kinds of relationships. Relationships of domination and subordination. Relationships that frame the dominant groups, humans, men, white people, as rational, and subordinate groups, nature, women, black people, and other people of color, as irrational and wild. They encourage dominant groups to tame and use subordinate groups. They frame the dominant groups as active subjects, while framing the subordinate groups as passive objects, things to be used. Modern systems of power, from settler colonialism to capitalism to imperialism, rest upon socially constructed categories. These categories have a purpose. They justify violence and exploitation and erase the harm that they cause at least in the minds of those perpetrating the violence. What does it mean that patriarchy, white supremacy, and extractive capitalism all rest upon the same, or at least similar, ideological foundations? Can this insight offer us clues about how to dismantle these systems? Given how interwoven these systems are, can we really tackle the roots of the climate crisis if we don't also tackle white supremacy and patriarchy? On the one hand, this can feel really overwhelming. How do we go up against such massive interlocking systems of power? But on the other hand, as Audre Lorde and many others have pointed out, when we see how intersecting these systems really are, we don't only see the size and the power of those systems. We also begin to see our many potential partners in dismantling those systems. Maybe this is overly simplistic or trite, but I'm going to say it anyway because I feel it's true. If the question is, how do we go up against such a massive interlocking system of power, a system so effectively built on division? Maybe the answer is together. In this episode, we've explored some of the walls built in our minds. In the next episode, we'll examine how the stories we tell shape the lives that we live. If you've found this podcast to be helpful, consider sharing it with a friend.
Thanks for listening.